Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks. Uh, all right. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of specific announcements, so basically I'll spend five minutes. Um, so, um, but I, I'll fill some time, I suppose. There are some things that are going on that I do want you to be aware of. Uh, first of all, for all of you teenagers, I don't see a whole lot of you out there right now. They're, you're probably hiding in the south wing. Um, but teenagers and parents of teenagers, tonight is our is a late night uh, for Epic, so we are going to be going bowling. So I say that because you know that it's going to be a late night, and also that um, if you want to pick your kids up at the bowling alley instead of the church at about 9.45-ish, that would be great. Uh, if, if not, you can pick them back up here at 10. Uh, so that's how things are going to work tonight. It's going to be a normal Epic, and then we're going to follow it up with a late night. And all of our safety and uh, all of our guidelines that we have here at the church are still going to apply even at the bowling alley, so just make sure that you are aware of all of that. So teens, make sure you know that. Teens also, teen parents, we do have a, an event coming up in two weeks, which is called Snow Day. It's replacing snow camp. Obviously, with the world we live in, it's really hard to have a bunch of teenagers staying overnight in small, confined spaces. So instead of snow camp and doing an overnight thing, we're going to do a one-day event here at the church. Uh, so teens and parents of teens, and also some of you, uh, there may be some people in this in the body that we're going to ask to help us with that as well, depending on uh, how many volunteers we end up having. But So all that's going on, and that's going to be two weeks, two weeks on Saturday the 27th, so that's coming up as well. So those are some teen events, uh, normal things that are going on at the church that you still need to be aware of that we would encourage you to come to. Young adults, 18 to 30, we have our young adult ministry that meets here on Tuesday nights starting at 7. Uh, we'd love to have you join us for that. Uh, we have uh, even start. I should have probably started with tonight. Uh, tonight, not only do we have our Epic Teen program, uh, but also going at a similar time at 6 o'clock is the Sunday night discussion group, I guess I'll call it, uh, as they discuss the sermons from Sunday mornings uh, and have an opportunity to connect in that way. I would really encourage you, if you haven't taken advantage of that, to come on out at 6 o'clock for that. Wednesday night, we have Wednesday night ABF. Uh, it starts at 6.30. There's about 45 minutes of teaching. And then following that, there is about 45 minutes of small group discussion. Uh, and again, that is an opportunity for you to find not only more teaching, which we know you can find teaching in a lot of places, but not only that, but also fellowship afterwards. Um, and uh, whether this, I don't know if this is going to scare people away or bring them in, but I'm going to be teaching this Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, yay. Uh, so... Um, we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts, uh, and I think it'll be a very interesting conversation, um, and I'm hoping that'll go really well, and we'll have some good time to fellowship and to learn together. Um, and uh, by the way, you should come every Wednesday. It's not just about who's speaking. That's not the important thing. Um, but every Wednesday at 6.30, we invite you to come to that. And men on Saturday mornings, as I've said before, and I'll keep saying, 7.30, uh, there is men's discussion, prayer, discipleship groups that meet here at the church at 7.30. Um, and I would encourage you to be there because it is a great time. Just make sure you set your alarm. I've learned the hard way. Um, so um, that is uh, all I really have to say, and it is almost 11. So um, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray to open our service uh, this morning with the two minutes I have left. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this morning again for so far this opportunity that you've placed here for us to worship you together for those who have been here to sing together, and even those who are just arriving, just the opportunity again to be together with your people, to be worshiping you in so many different ways, through song, through hearing your word, through fellowship, uh, through just being able to be here and serving one another. We want to praise and thank you for all that you've given us, the opportunity to be here. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that you use your word to change us from the inside out and to teach us things that are not just for our minds, but also for our hearts to understand. And so today, as we get ready to hear from your word from the book of Daniel, I just pray that you would uh, help us to be ready to hear, ready to understand, uh, open our minds and our hearts to what you would have to say to us this morning. Uh, just, Lord, would you be with Pastor Justin as he shares from your word, and, uh, and, and as we always pray, Lord, that you would use your word to transform and not just inform. So we want to pray for that this morning. Thank you for your your endless love. Remind us of that even as we go through our day today. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The book of Hebrews begins with these words. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God once spoke to Abraham through three visitors. God once spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. God once spoke to the pagan prophet Balaam through a donkey. But repeatedly in the Bible, we read of God speaking to individuals in dreams. Why dreams? As far as I know, the Bible never explains why God spoke the various ways that He did. But I can think of a few possible reasons for dreams. First, a dream is private. Typically, no one else has access to what you dream unless you describe it. Second, when you're dreaming, you're not distracted by the world around you. Typically, you're asleep. Third, for God to communicate this way doesn't drastically impact the world around us. Typically, when God shows up, it's quite the spectacle. Think of the thunder, lightning, and earthquake on Mount Sinai, or the pillar of fire roaming through the wilderness. Finally, in dreams, we can see places we've never been, or people we've never met, and we can see and interact with distortions of reality, things that don't really exist, in order to gain understanding about something we never knew before. Now, of course, God is in no way limited in these areas. He could actually physically transport a person to a different place through supernatural means. And He could actually distort reality right in front of us, like a bush that's on fire but doesn't actually burn. The fact of the matter remains, God chose to speak to individuals in Scripture at times in dreams. Sometimes the messages in these dreams were quite straightforward. Think of the angel in Joseph's dream instructing him to take Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt. But on several occasions in the Old Testament, the messages God delivered in dreams were not so straightforward, but rather involved elaborate symbolism. Sometimes God sends an angel to interpret the dream to the person who dreamed it. Other times God sends a prophet. Enter Daniel. God has given a message to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the king is desperate to understand the message. He's asked his professional expert dream interpreters to do the impossible. He commanded them to describe the contents of his dream and to then explain the message. When they admitted their inability to meet the king's impossible demand, he ordered their execution. The executioner showed up on Daniel's doorstep, his doorstep and his three friends, and Daniel asked for an opportunity to do what the king has asked. Daniel and his three friends asked the Lord to mercifully reveal the mystery, the contents of the king's dream and its intended meaning, and the God of Israel did just that. As Daniel writes down this story, he interrupts the action of the story to include the contents of his praise of God in Daniel 2, 20-23. This puts us readers in suspense. We want to know what happens next. We want to know what God has revealed. But as we looked at last week, Daniel has told the story in such a way that what we learn about God, that he is the great mystery-revealing, wisdom-giving God, is more important than the contents and meaning of the dream. Nevertheless, The dream and its interpretation are important. As we talked about last week, the message of Daniel 2 is, God alone has the wisdom and might to rule and explain history, and His eternal kingdom will finally replace all human kingdoms. We'll see the second half of that statement fleshed out today. We pick up the story this morning in Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 30. In these verses, Daniel continues to build suspense But he indicates to the king that God does indeed want Nebuchadnezzar to understand the message. God has revealed the future to King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read verses 24 to 30. Therefore Daniel went in to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, 
I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No, wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Ariok, the executioner, has come to kill Daniel and his three friends, along with all of the other Babylonian wise men. Daniel tells him that, He is ready to satisfy the king's impossible demand. In verse 25, it seems like Ariok might be bragging a bit. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. He seems to be hoping for some kind of finder's fee. He must believe that Daniel can do what he said he can do, because I can imagine that if Daniel were to fail, then Ariok would find the king not particularly happy with him. Nevertheless, contrast Ariok's boasting with Daniel's humility in this passage. The king asks Daniel if he can do what he commanded the other wise men to do. Both describe the contents of his dream and also explain its meaning. Look again at verse 27. How do you think the king would have felt when essentially the first word out of Daniel's mouth was no? He basically gives the same answer that the other wise men gave the king. The same answer that led to him ordering their mass execution. Daniel says, no one is able to do what the king has asked. It's impossible. Oh, I wonder if Daniel paused before he pressed on with the words of verse 28. It's a miracle. The king didn't immediately leap off the throne and execute Daniel on the spot. Daniel goes on to explain that There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That last phrase, in the latter days, is important. Daniel has borrowed that phrase, probably specifically from the prophet Isaiah. We'll see at the end of Daniel's explanation how the meaning of this dream connects specifically with what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. But as Daniel writes this down for his readers, and as God inspired these words to be recorded for us readers as well, he uses this phrase, in the latter days, to draw our attention to this passage in Isaiah. Let's just read Isaiah 2, 2 to 4, and set up that connection, which we'll come back to later. Isaiah writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah gets a glimpse of the future glory of Jerusalem, the dwelling place of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the temple will be exalted so that Gentiles will flood into the dwelling place of Yahweh and Yahweh will teach them and they will follow him. Yahweh will judge and then there will be only peace on earth. Daniel suggests by using this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar's dream connects with this ultimate outcome. Now I should tip my hand a bit at this point. Many students of Scripture see Isaiah 2 as pointing toward the millennium. 
I do not. I don't see any reason in this text to connect this description specifically with the millennium. We'll come back to why that is later. Back in Daniel 2, Daniel not only tells the content of the king's dream, he also comments on what the king was doing just before the dream came. In verse 29, Daniel notes that Nebuchadnezzar had been thinking about the future of his own kingdom, worrying about his legacy when he drifted off to sleep and received a message from the Lord. This may have been a repeated occurrence as well, but before Daniel describes the dream itself, he explains why God has revealed the mystery in verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. How kind of God and how humble of Daniel. We're going to see this over and over in the book of Daniel, but Daniel is utterly respectful and utterly helpful to the wicked kings he serves. In fact, we're going to see evidence later on that Daniel seems to develop intimate friendships with these kings. He genuinely cares about them. Daniel becomes an example of both loving one's enemies and respecting and submitting to governing authorities. In verses 31 to 35, Daniel describes the contents of the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Notice that Daniel refers to this as an image This is a word that can refer specifically to an idol. It's not just a statue. It's an idolatrous statue in the form of a man. Also, the phrase, a great image, has a curious feature in Aramaic. The little English word, a, actually translates the Aramaic word for the number one. This is one great image. Now, that probably sounds strange in English, And that may be why English Bible translators simply use the indefinite article A. However, the number one has significance for the meaning of the dream. That it is one great image stresses the unity of the statue. We're going to see that a part of the message of this dream is about the unity of the kingdoms represented in the statue. Though they are represented by different materials, they are ultimately one united in their opposition to God and in their destined destruction. But we're already getting ahead of ourselves. Here, if you'll put the next slide up on the screen, is my favorite artistic depiction of the statue. There are dozens, maybe hundreds, of different portrayals you can find in books or on the Internet. Notice two more details in the description before we move on to Daniel's interpretation. When the statue is destroyed, in verse 35, Daniel adds that the pieces became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. So Daniel provides a comparison here. This is not strict description. The image of chaff being blown away is a common picture in the Bible for God's judgment. Psalm 1-4 is quite vivid in this regard and may lie in the background of Daniel's thinking. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Secondly, at the end of verse 35, Daniel describes the stone that destroyed the statue as growing into a great mountain and filling the entire earth. This takes us back to Isaiah 2.2. Then in Daniel's biblical understanding, the stone is being pictured as Yahweh's temple which would grow greater than all mountains, so that all nations will flow into it in the latter days. 
We'll expand on this through Daniel's interpretation at the end. Now let's consider that interpretation. Now we know what he saw, but what does it all mean? Let's read verses 36 to 45. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. As we walk through this, it's important to say up front that we must focus on what's actually stated in the text. We can see that the parts of the statue represent human kingdoms. However, only the first kingdom and the final kingdom are identified specifically. The others are merely described, and they're described using figurative language. Therefore, especially in our discussion of how the fulfillment works out, we need to be humble and allow for the possibility of multiple viewpoints. Also, we need to hold on to the connectivity and the unity of the statue. As I pointed out, Daniel refers to it as one great image. And when the stone comes to smash the statue, all of the kingdoms are said to be replaced, not just the last one. To reiterate... We must allow Daniel's spirit-inspired, God-given interpretation to govern our understanding of this passage and its fulfillment. The text of Scripture, the details of the text of Scripture, must guide us. First, this passage, and then other passages that are connected to this in some way, both within the book of Daniel and elsewhere, and then we may move into attempting to perceive the fulfillment or outworking of this within history. In the end, my working assumption is that the simplest explanation that accounts for all the details is best. So, we begin with what is stated most clearly, the identity of the first kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. The first kingdom is Babylon, represented by Nebuchadnezzar himself, Notice the emphasis again on God's gracious sovereignty. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And God gave the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens into his hand, making him rule over them all. That's an interesting description, isn't it? He's not just king over the human citizens of his kingdom. He's depicted as ruler over the land animals and the birds, too. But Daniel doesn't just say that he rules over these categories of creatures. Rather, he says that Nebuchadnezzar rules over all of them, all of humanity, all the beasts of the field, and all the birds. Of course, we shouldn't take this literally. We'll have to watch out for universal language like this and consider contextually whether it's intended to be extended literally or not. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Here... 
in the most direct identification in this section, Daniel says plainly that Nebuchadnezzar is represented by the golden head of the statue. Now I'd like to jump down to the only other specifically identified kingdom in the dream, the final kingdom. Glance down again at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So the dream depicts the establishment, the setting up of God's kingdom. Note that word, set up. It's important here, and it will be an important term in chapter 3. God's kingdom will be eternal, never destroyed, never conquered, nobody else, and it shall prove victorious in destroying all other kingdoms depicted in the statue. Now, as we consider the other kingdoms represented in the statue, let's just again restate the obvious. Daniel doesn't specify which historical kingdoms these are. It was apparently not important for Nebuchadnezzar to know them. But we can deduce their identities from a larger look at the book of Daniel. So let's briefly consider the identity of these other kingdoms based on what we can see from other scripture. Identity of the second and third kingdoms will be the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. Daniel's first vision, recorded in chapter 7, the vision that came to Daniel himself, has to do with four kingdoms followed by God's kingdom, just like the one in chapter 2 given to Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are parallel with each other. But in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel's vision, none of the kingdoms are specifically identified, and Daniel only shows interest in understanding the fourth kingdom more in detail. So we press on, and in Daniel 8, we read about another vision Daniel had that featured a ram and a goat fighting against each other. But Daniel gets a specific identification of those two kingdoms in Daniel chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. The two-horned ram represented the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire that would historically conquer the Babylonians under the leadership of the half-Median, half-Persian Cyrus the Great. The goat represented the Greek Empire, which would conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. When we combine our biblical Reference from Daniel 8 with what we know of from history, it makes good sense for these two kingdoms to also be reflected as the second and third kingdoms in chapter 2 and also chapter 7. Daniel's original readers, think about them for just a minute, they would have been living during the Persian Empire and they would have probably been able to recognize the second kingdom as the Persian Empire based on the symbolism related to silver in the statue, and related to the description of the bear in chapter 7. So I think we can rather confidently conclude that we have the historical sequence of the Babylonian, Persian, and Greek empires reflected in Daniel chapter 2. So far, so good. The fourth empire and the fourth part of the statue is more complicated. Simply put, We can connect it with the Roman Empire pretty easily. But nowhere in Daniel, and indeed nowhere else in Scripture as far as I can tell, is the fourth kingdom, as it's depicted in the statue, or even as it's depicted as the monster in Daniel chapter 7, is ever commented on and specified as any particular empire. However, that doesn't leave us completely in the dark. It does require us to be more tentative about our conclusion. Nevertheless, from the historical progression, I think we're probably on the right track to identify the fourth kingdom as the Roman Empire. Now, we get a little bit of a comparison of the second and third kingdoms with the first that we can give some attention to. But if you'll take a look at that statue yet again up on the screen, this artistic rendering, I've given you the labels out to the side on how I see those kingdoms getting fleshed out here. But let's quickly look at how Daniel characterizes these kingdoms. Look again at the first part of verse 39. Daniel says to the king, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. That's all he says about the Medo-Persian Empire. They're inferior to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, and they'll come afterward. Silver's inferior value to gold communicates the inferiority of the Medo-Persian Empire 
to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire. However, in what way they'll be inferior is left unstated. From history, we know that the Medo-Persian Empire lasts much longer than the Babylonian Empire, and it would conquer a much larger territory than Babylon. Ultimately, it doesn't matter why or how they were inferior. Nebuchadnezzar simply needed to hear that the next kingdom would be somehow lesser than his own in quality. The rest of verse 39 says, And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Daniel mentions the bronze specifically, which probably communicates again some kind of inferiority compared to the previous two kingdoms. In spite of its bronze quality, Daniel says it shall rule over all the earth. If this is the Greek kingdom or any of the empires of the ancient world, we cannot take this phrase literally. The Greek empire would historically extend further than Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire and also further than the Medo-Persian empire before it, but it would not be some kind of universal or global kingdom. Now, we come to the fourth kingdom itself. We need to consider the weakness of the fourth kingdom. Apart from some of the details, what I've said so far agrees with most conservative Bible teachers and preachers. But this is where I must part ways with some good, faithful Bible expositors, such as David Jeremiah and John MacArthur. And I mention their names specifically because I want you to be able to know both how much I respect and learn from these men, but I also want you to know exactly what it is of their teaching I'm disagreeing with. So as a way of seeking to be clear, I'm setting up my dialogue partners, if you will. In their understanding of this statue, they put a strong separation between the iron legs and the feet of mixed iron and clay. I agree with them that the feet, that the fourth kingdom is the historical Roman Empire. I disagree with them that the, fourth, that the feet are intended to be some kind of future reorganization or revival of the Roman Empire, perhaps in the form of a European Union or something like it. Here's why. Look at verses 40 to 43 and pay attention to the pronouns. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Daniel's interpretation does not separate the feet and toes from the legs. He keeps them united as a single kingdom. There's no reason that I can see from the text to suggest a gap in this kingdom so that it revives at the very end of human history in connection with the rise of a final Antichrist figure. The feet, as far as I can tell, do not represent a future separate stage of the fourth kingdom. Rather, they are simply there to highlight the weakness of this fourth kingdom, which is an important point in the meaning of this dream. And Daniel elaborates on that weakness specifically. The combination of iron with clay communicates something that is both very strong and very, and very weak at the same time. Why would he need to mention this? I suspect it's because the fourth kingdom probably won't appear to be weak to those living under its rule. Its weakness might even be overlooked as a strength. After all, this fourth kingdom is said to break and crush all these previous kingdoms, which also isn't a literal reflection of history. The Romans did conquer the Greeks, and you could perhaps view the Babylonians and Persians as incorporated into the Greek empire. But this statement is probably simply 
to vividly depict how much stronger the Roman Empire was than its predecessors in spite of this weakness, this critical weakness. The nature of the weakness, however, is elaborated in a phrase that is very unclear. The ESV interprets it it as mixing in marriage. The phrase is literally, they will mix with one another by the seed of men. And the they is the kings that will be mentioned in verse 44. There are actually at least five different ways to understand this mixture, and I have an opinion on the matter, but I don't think we need to pin it down to get the point. The point is that the fourth kingdom will seem to be the strongest of all kingdoms, and that is where God's unbreakable, unending kingdom will enter in. Much is sometimes made of the toes as well, so I suppose a brief comment is in order. Notice that the text never specifies the number of toes. Big whoop, I know. Given that this is the image of a man, surely he had ten toes. But my point is that if the number of toes had specific relevance as symbolic of ten kings within the fourth kingdom, for example, as is sometimes suggested then I think Daniel would have made that clear in his interpretation. Since he doesn't mention it, I don't think we should press it into view. Seeing the parallel with the vision of chapter 7, where the fourth beast ends up with ten horns, some students of Scripture want to link up those ten horns with these ten toes, and I just say that's unnecessary. While the two visions are parallel, that doesn't mean they're saying the same exact thing. Daniel's vision in chapter 7 elaborates further on the fourth kingdom, and so we shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised to see more details given there, but that doesn't mean we need to force those details back into chapter 2. Now, let's keep the main thing the main thing here. The main thing is what comes after the fourth kingdom, the stone. And we'll talk about the three stages of God's kingdom depicted here. Let's take a closer look at how Daniel interprets the stone In the dream. Notice the timing indicator at the beginning of verse 44. And in the days of those kings. Which kings? The kings just mentioned as part of the fourth kingdom. As I understand this vision, the fourth kingdom, including the feet and toes, represents the historical Roman Empire. When did Jesus show up to establish God's kingdom? During the historical Roman Empire. As we think of the kingdom of God, from a New Testament vantage point, there are three stages that we can identify. The inauguration of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, and the consummation of the kingdom. All three of these stages were visible in the dream, but Daniel's interpretation only highlights the inauguration and the consummation. Notice again verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. That word set up is a good word for the inauguration, the initial establishment of the kingdom. The setting up of the kingdom took place during Jesus' ministry. Mark, the gospel writer, summarizes Jesus' preaching in Mark 1.15 as, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus also indicated that he understood himself to be the stone of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and that he was fulfilling the entrance of that stone into the kingdoms of men during his ministry. I pulled on this thread during our series through Habakkuk, but I'll draw it in here as well. In Matthew twenty-one forty-four. Jesus describes himself as the stone that, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This alludes to the stone of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He is the king who brings God's kingdom and crushes all earthly kingdoms through his victorious death and resurrection. The fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream focuses on Jesus' first coming, not his second and not the millennium. But the consummation of the kingdom is highlighted as well. The second half of Daniel 2.44 says, 
It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. This is where we need to remember the unity of the statue. Depicted as breaking the whole thing. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and the clay. But notice how Daniel rearranges the materials. The clay is not even mentioned in connection with the iron. This indicates that the statue represents more than just four successive historical empires. Rather, the statue also represents all human kingdoms, all nations throughout history. None of them are meant to last. All face the judgment of God, whether for their pride and hubris, for their brutality and violence, or for their idolatry, all human kingdoms sit under the judgment of God, awaiting the consummation of His kingdom when the true King, the King of God's kingdom, Jesus Christ, will return and execute final judgment against all who reject Him. The only hope for citizens of all nations, including this nation, is to trust in Jesus, to look to Him for salvation, to become a subject of His kingdom, now, before it's too late. His return is on the divine calendar, and that date will not be revealed to anyone before He arrives. So trust Him today. The destruction of the kingdoms reflects the final judgment of God, the true consummation of the kingdom, depicted in the dream as the scattering of the rubble like chaff, and depicted in the book of Revelation as the rider on the white horse arriving to slay all the wicked, which is a precursor to all people standing before the great white throne of God for final judgment. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, head of gold, will suffer from this judgment. And he should take heed that it's the stone kingdom of God that will be supreme. Not his own, though it be made of gold and though it be set at the head of these human kingdoms. But notice the way Daniel words it in verse 44. The stone shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. The breaking in pieces is probably language borrowed from Psalm 2, verse 9, a reference to the Messiah, the descendant of David, coming to bring judgment against God's enemies. Though Daniel doesn't mention it in the interpretation of the dream, I suppose because it wouldn't have been relevant to Nebuchadnezzar, I do think we get a glimpse of the growth of God's kingdom in the dream as well. Look back at verses 34 and 35. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The inauguration of God's kingdom is depicted in verse 34 and the beginning of verse 35 when it appears suddenly from God and impacts the statue, shattering all the kingdoms. Then the consummation of God's kingdom is depicted as the rubble becoming like chaff being blown away. But the last sentence of verse 35 depicts the growth of God's kingdom. The time between the inauguration of God's kingdom in Jesus' first coming and the consummation of God's kingdom at His second coming. The stone became a great mountain. Nebuchadnezzar saw the small stone grow into a great mountain. This is akin to Jesus' kingdom parables, in which God's kingdom is compared to a mustard seed that grows into a massive plant, or to leaven that gradually spreads through the whole lump of dough. At this point, let me clarify one other point where I differ from folks like Dr. Jeremiah and Dr. MacArthur. I do not think it's biblically appropriate to distinguish between a spiritual or heavenly form of God's kingdom versus God's kingdom on earth. God's kingdom 
is ultimately about the union of heaven and earth. And I do see it progressing through stages, as I've already said. The Old Testament prophecies about God's kingdom do not always distinguish clearly between these stages, but I don't believe that they allow for a sharp distinction between spiritual and earthly, as though God's earthly kingdom is only appropriate in connection with the millennium. And whatever's going on in the church age doesn't have any connection with these Old Testament prophecies. I strongly disagree with this way of sketching out God's kingdom. Right now, right now, at this very moment, Jesus is ruling over His kingdom on earth from His throne in heaven. In fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament, including this one. He inaugurated His kingdom on earth, identifying Himself as the King and calling sinful people into His kingdom to be His subjects and followers, disciples. This is not just a spiritual kingdom. Jesus' kingdom parables didn't make any distinction between a spiritual form of the kingdom that would lead into an earthly, physical form of the kingdom in the millennium, as far as I can tell. The final phase of the kingdom is not the millennium. The millennium, as represented in Revelation 20, is what we might call a penultimate stage. You could even compare it to the front porch of the house, if that wasn't making some silly likeness of it. But that's kind of the reality. It's the entryway, the gateway. A thousand years is a long time in our vantage point, but God's kingdom lasts forever. So what's a thousand years? Like a day or something in that mindset and in that timeline. The final phase of the kingdom is when King Jesus returns to the earth. And again, he does that prior to the millennium. He will rule over this still broken world. Think about that. This still broken world with all of his people during that thousand year period. And then he will consummate his reign by executing the final judgment of Satan and all the wicked from all of history. And then finally, finally, he will transform this world into the new creation. Uniting a new heaven and a new earth with the union and overlap that God had planned from before the beginning. Returning to the connection between this dream and the words of Isaiah 2. The establishment of God's kingdom, the establishment of God's temple, the exaltation of God's mountain is for the latter days. A phrase roughly equivalent with the end times. These phrases and other biblical phrases simply refer to the final season of human history. Folks, that final season started when Jesus ascended to heaven. We are living in the last days, the end times. So were the apostles of the first century. So the latter days encompass Jesus' establishment of the kingdom in his ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension to sit on his royal throne. And then what we call the church age all the way up to Jesus' return when he will wrap up human history as we know it and bring in the next phase of the kingdom, the millennium, which is just a precursor to the actual consummation, the new creation. There's your biblical end times timeline. I'm sure I left out some details. But those are the data points, the events that are supposed to be the focus of our attention as Christians. Those are the important ones. It's too easy to get distracted in discussions of end-time speculation and elevate the wrong things. Miss the point entirely. Back to Daniel 2. Daniel provides a summary at the end of Daniel 2.45 for Nebuchadnezzar. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Nebuchadnezzar had seen a great image. Daniel wants him to know this great God who reveals mysteries. One of the reasons Nebuchadnezzar would have wanted to understand the message of the dream is because if it proved to be a bad omen for him, maybe there's something he could do to change the outcome. In the Babylonian worldview... That's why dream interpretation was so important. 
Their theology didn't conceive of a God who had a definite plan for history or a God who had the sovereign power to do whatever He wants or a God whose plans can't be foiled by human cleverness. Daniel makes it clear that there is no getting away from the fulfillment of this dream. Well, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Look at verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. We might expect Nebuchadnezzar to respond with anger, grief, or confusion. But no, he praises Daniel and Daniel's God. The language is flexible enough here that we maybe don't have to envision that Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping Daniel. Rather, he's perhaps offering sacrifices and incense in honor of Daniel. But to see the great king bowing down to the slave Daniel is a powerful image. His praise of God in verse 47 is significant. He refers to Daniel's God as God of gods. This is in no way a monotheistic kind of confession, as though he is converted to become a worshiper of Yahweh. Rather, he's essentially added Yahweh to his list of foreign gods that are worth respecting. And he even seems to exalt him to the top of the list. Moreover, that he refers to Daniel's God as Lord of Kings, acknowledges that he got the main message of the dream, which is also the message of this chapter for us. God alone has the wisdom and might to rule and explain history, and His eternal kingdom will finally replace all human kingdoms. As Daniel had said earlier in his praise of God, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar sees Yahweh, the God of Daniel, the God of Israel, as having sovereignty over human kings, even over himself. Will his words here prove to be anything more than pious religious verbiage expressed in a moment of wonder? Or will his actions line up with his confession? Tune in next time. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar keeps his promise. He had offered great reward to anyone who could reveal the contents of his dream and provide a plausible explanation of his meaning. So he promotes Daniel to become a high-ranking Babylonian official. I'm sure that's what Daniel always wanted. No, I'm sure it wasn't. But we will see Daniel make the most of his position. And he immediately uses it to benefit his three friends. He requests their promotion as well, perhaps hoping that their elevated position will keep them safe from further danger from the fickle king. Will it work? Tune in next time. Next week, we will look at the famous story from Daniel chapter 3. I hope you'll be reading it this week. The setting... Maybe a few years later, but we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar might still have been troubled by this dream and the downfall of his empire that was depicted there. It may be that his actions in chapter 3 are an ill-fated attempt to overcome the message of the dream. He builds one great image made entirely of gold, intended to unify and strengthen his empire and his subjects' commitment to him and his rule, perhaps hoping to prolong his rule so that the silver kingdom might not materialize, at least in his lifetime. What are we supposed to take away from this? In the way that I read this chapter, it certainly doesn't provide us with any basis for future speculations about the very end of history. Rather, it shows us the certainty of the victory of God's kingdom. The stone most certainly destroys the statue. The primary fulfillment of that destruction of human kingdoms has already happened. 2,000 years ago, The eternal Son of God took on human flesh to inaugurate the final kingdom. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God, unlike any other ruler or any other person on the planet. But then He established His rule in the most unusual, unexpected way. He allowed Himself to be executed as a criminal. 
though the courts couldn't, couldn't actually convict him of anything. But make no mistake, the stone that the builders rejected was showing himself to be the cornerstone of God's true dwelling place. The temple of his body was destroyed on the cross, but on the third day it was rebuilt, filled with the glory of God in a more profound way than Solomon's temple ever was. The building of the temple is the building of the kingdom. And because the king died and rose again, he took his throne at the right hand of God, and from there he sends his Holy Spirit to live in everyone who trusts him. The citizens of his kingdom become the temple of God, the place where God lives in the world. Now the kingdom grows, becomes, the stone becomes the mountain as more and more sinners are transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from merely being citizens of the kingdoms of this world, the human kingdoms related to the statue, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. What do we make of this? We worship more sincerely than King Nebuchadnezzar. We praise the gracious sovereignty of our great God. God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries. Our God reigns. He invites all people everywhere to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus and be rescued from the dominance of this world system, freed from slavery to sin, freed from the decaying power of death. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe that Jesus has shown Himself to be the Lord of all. Believe that Jesus' perfect human life was lived in your place as your representative. Believe that Jesus' death paid for your sins, freeing you from the burden of your guilt and from the overwhelming, enslaving power of sin. And believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive right now, showing His power to give eternal life. Receive that life from Him now. And live the rest of your days waiting for His return to save you from the ongoing affliction of this fallen world and the continual presence of sin. The Lord is in control of history. He gives world events meaning. He gives your life meaning. This dream depicted events that would transpire hundreds of years later. Let that impress you. Our God knows the future because our God rules the future. And if you are impressed by the accuracy of this prophecy, strap yourself in. You ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) But Christians, let's read prophecy in the way God intended it to be read. I think I heard Pastor Alistair Begg say this about prophecy in one of his sermons on Daniel several years ago. I think he said, these things are not intended for our calendar. They are intended for our comfort. Indeed, studying biblical prophecy shouldn't breed the kind of arguments and debates that it typically does. Instead, studying biblical prophecy should breed comfort, encouragement, and hope for God's people. And I'm sorry to hear that it hasn't been that way for some of you. I know it can be jarring and unsettling to hear your pastor disagreeing with other Bible teachers you respect or challenging perspectives that you've held maybe all your Christian life. All I ask is that you keep looking at the text. The Bible is what is authoritative and inerrant, not the preacher. I have developed studied convictions about some of these things related to biblical prophecy, but that doesn't mean I've necessarily got it right. I hope you could admit the same thing. And I hope that if you have questions or don't understand, you might come talk with me. Each Sunday evening, there's an opportunity to discuss these things in a small group setting. And I welcome phone calls, emails, and in-person discussions. Whether we agree on the finer points or not, let's keep the main thing the main thing, shall we? God knows the future. God rules the future. And your life is in His good hands. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we do thank you for this vision and its message. We thank you for recording it in Scripture for us. We thank you that, as the Apostle Paul said, these things are for our encouragement and our strengthening. Help us to go deeper into your word and not run from it because there are hard things there and because there are confusing things there. Let us keep running to the text of Scripture. Keep digging in. Keep listening harder. Keep looking more closely. Would you call us deeper into your word? And would you speak so clearly? And would you change us by speaking? Thank you that your word has power unlike ours. When you speak, the universe comes into existence. When you speak, dead people come to life. When you speak, we're rescued from slavery to sin. Only your word has that kind of power. Would you speak that way in our hearts to keep on carving away the hard places and transforming us and conforming us into the image of your Son. You will do it by your Word. And so let every one of us be motivated and stirred to keep looking at your Word, to keep looking at the book, and to keep listening for your voice there in the Scriptures. Thank you, Father, for your care for us, your deep love for us, that you've given us such a great gift as this great book. The book of Daniel, yes, but the whole Bible, even more so, Father. Thank you for showing us our Savior in this great book. Thank you for showing us our sin in this great book. And thank you for saving us from it through this great book. We praise you, God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.